Hey, Miles, have you been watching Our Flag Means Death? Yes, yes, I have, Jay. It is so good. You know what's especially fun? Trying to figure out how it would fit into the Marvel Universe. Wait, what? Well, see, in, in Marvel, Blackbeard was... Superpowered? Oh, definitely. Because he was also a time-displaced Ben Grimm, better known as The Thing. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 376 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to, I don't know, I guess a good jumping on point if you happen to be jumping on to our show at this point, because we're starting a new run of a comic. Man, you might be. I'm still thinking about the star-crossed romance between Ben Grimm and Steed Bonnet. Oh yeah, fair point. Yeah, for real listeners, Our Flag Means Death is, like, genuinely excellent, and so much queerer than I thought it was when it started. So much. It's great. It's made by people who clearly know their golden age of piracy history, and then threw a lot of it away. You know, as well they should. Uh, but, pirates aside, you're coming back to X-Force today. Yeah, it's been a while since we've looked at X-Force, so what would you say are, are sort of the basics for anyone who, who needs their memory tickled or who's just coming in now? Okay, so these days, X-Force are like the X-Men, except, number one, they're mostly younger, thanks to being partially composed of former members of the X-Men's junior team, the New Mutants, and... And number two, they are somewhat more violent, being led by Cable, a grizzled cyborg soldier from the future. And really, that's most of it. We'll get to the characters, we'll get to the relevant continuity as we go... But yeah, writer Jeff Loeb's run just ended, and writer John Francis Moore's run is just starting, so pretty good place to jump in right after the big events of Onslaught, which we also, for once, don't need to recap, because they're not very relevant, except for the one part we'll get to that is. Exactly. So, John Francis Moore's run starts with X-Force number 63, Wish You Were Here, which is penciled by Anthony Castrillo, inked by Mark Morales and Chad Hunt, colored by Leanne Clark, and lettered by Richard Starkins and Comicraft and Colia Fuse. These are... 63 and 64 are a pair of lot various stories made infinitely less interesting by the general absence of Doctor Doom. Right. Latveria is Dr. Doom's country that he rules with a literally iron fist. Actually, it's probably like some kind of vibranium alloy. Anyway, a fist covered in metal. And that said, when I say they're made less enjoyable by his absence, I, I, they are far from unenjoyable. Um, I am really digging John Francis more on this so far because, among other things, we knew he could tell a good story, but what this really grounds for me is that he knows his Marvel history, and he has a lot of fun pulling on obscure and older strings in ways that actually remind me a little bit of Al Ewing. Yeah, we saw some of that when he wrote Factor X, which was the Age of Apocalypse's version of X-Factor. There were a number of continuity nods pulled into that alternate reality, but it's cool seeing him get a chance to play in the 616. Not that we haven't seen that before. He did some X-Factor. That was pretty good. He's done some little bits and pieces here and there. But it's really nice to sink our teeth into what we know is going to be a long run with him as the writer. Also, an apropos of nothing, on the cover to X-Force 63, Cable looks a lot like the guy who plays the Carolyn Bingley analog in Fire Island, who was probably like three years old when this comic came out, now that I think of it. Oh, we are old. Eh, that's okay. Speaking of—and and Fire Island, by the way, is delightful. That, that I saw it last night. That is my official pitch. 
Oh, okay. I haven't seen it. I guess I should. It is a beat-by-beat uh, beat beat retelling of Pride and Prejudice with a passel of gay 20-somethings on Fire Island. Yeah, I feel pretty good about that. So, as far as Doctor Doom, we mentioned he's gone, we alluded to Onslaught. What's the elevator pitch description of that whole thing? Onslaught? Uh, well, specifically the Doom part and why he's not around anymore. Right, right. A bunch of non-mutant heroes and Doctor Doom, who was being heroic at the time, jumped into a portal to seal off Onslaught. They have disappeared. They are considered dead at the moment, although they're actually in a pocket universe created by Franklin Richards. I did appreciate that at the end of Onslaught, Doom's heroism was kind of accidental. Basically, he just got picked up by one of the heroes and dragged in. You know, happens to the worst of us. Yup. So he'll be back, but not yet. So right now, Latveria is without its monarch. We open with Tabitha Smith, Meltdown, who comes to in a tiny, deserted town where she quickly encounters the only other living human who's a fellow by the name of Dmitry Fortunov. So who is Dmitry Fortunov? Dmitry Fortunov is the grandson of Baron Sabat, who later became King Vladimir of Latveria. I believe this is Dmitry's first appearance. But he's going to show up a handful more times, mostly in Doom-centric stories, before dying unceremoniously in 2020. So I couldn't actually find the issue, but from what I've read, this is his second appearance, because there's a story that leads into this story in Tales of the Marvel Universe number one. That's the start of Dimitri and his friend Sergei, we'll get to Sergei later, uh, to, uh, it's the start of their mission to try to take over Latveria once they hear that Doctor Doom is gone. So I guess it's just like a little preview to this. You actually don't need to read it, it's just kind of cool that that existed. I mean, you definitely don't need to read it. I didn't even know it existed till just now. See, and the story totally holds together. So as for where they are, they are in a weird little idyllic but isolated kind of 1950s looking town called Littleville, L-I-D-D-L-E-V-I-L-L-E. And if you were a Fantastic Four reader in 1981, this might sound familiar, but we'll get back to that in a moment because first we're going to look at how they got here. But before that, let's talk about some of the art. Because Meltdown, which is to say Boom Boom, I will forever call her Boom Boom, looks awesome in this. Her powers specifically look awesome in this. When she's surprised by Dimitri, she creates those energy time bomb things that are her mutant power in her hands. And there is just energy crackling in these gigantic arcs upward and downward toward like multiple ground points. She just looks so goddamn powerful. And at this point in her development as a mutant and as a superhero, she is. And I appreciate that. I appreciate that like... She's confused, she doesn't know what's going on, and yet she is fearsome. Yeah, because Trio has a lot of fun with the powers in this. For real. So anyway, as to how Tabitha ended up in Littleville, X-Force, aided by Nathaniel Richards, was sneaking into Castle Doom to destroy Doom's time platform before anyone else could abuse it. Nathaniel Richards? We haven't talked about him in a little bit. What's his deal? Uh, he is Reed Richards' father, he's a time traveler, he's kind of an asshole, and he also just happens to have impersonated Doctor Doom for a while, so he knows how to make the castle obey him. But okay, time travel machine, what? Right, Doom has a fucking time travel podium. Now, this first appeared in Fantastic Four number 5, way the hell back in 1962, and it is, as it happens, why Ben Grimm was Blackbeard. Right! The infamous Ben Grimm Blackbeard story we alluded to in the cold open. It's delightful, listeners. Check it out. He does not, unfortunately, hook up with Steed Bonnet. I mean, on page, anyway. Whether the historical Blackbeard did or not um, remains the subject of some degree of controversy. 
As far as why X-Force is here, Cable has his own reasons for not wanting time travel technology to fall into the wrong hands. So in Cable number 41, which came out slightly before this... Actually, I think it came out slightly after, but was supposed to have taken place before. Oh, gotcha. Well, anyway, in a story that was supposed to take place before this... And clearly was supposed to be released before this, as it's alluded to in a footnote. Right. Cable discovered the Time Core from his his spaceship Greymalkin, which had been shunted into the sea in an old X-Force story, as did the villain Sinseer, who almost blew up all of reality by messing with it. So at this point, Cable figures, you know what, let's just make sure nobody has time travel technology. It's going to be safer that way. Yeah. Yeah, and Doom, of course, has his time platform, which he's used relatively recently in an annual to to determine the origins of Onslaught. Turns out, they're complicated. Yep, but we've already been over that, so we're definitely not going to go there again right now, because we don't have to, and that's a luxury that we'd like to luxuriate in. Mm-hmm. So anyway, Cable, Nathaniel Richards, Meltdown, Siren, Richter, and Shatterstar were sneaking into Castle Doom, while Sunspot, Warpath, and Caliban were back up, hanging with some of Cable's Romani friends. Domino's away doing her solo series right now, we'll get to that, uh, in fact, very soon. But let's talk visuals, because the characters look a little different than the last time we saw them. Before, they were all wearing purple and yellow uniforms, each with their own little stylistic flourishes but the same color scheme. Now they're yellow and blue, and... I don't know how to feel about that, because those are X-Men colors, and I liked X-Force looking more distinct from the X-Men. Yeah, my first thought was that this this series took place before the purple and yellow, but I guess they just didn't—they had very individual costumes before that. They didn't wear yellow and blue. Yeah, I don't know if that'll be resolved with the next artist, or colorist, or what, because this is an era I haven't read very much of. I do appreciate, though, that Cable, as he often does, has five visible X-Logos— on his little harnessy thing over his bodysuit, not counting his probably ex-logo-themed boxers that he's wearing underneath, I can only assume. No, no. Cable's a very serious character, which means he's definitely wearing boxers with little hearts on them. Mmm. Valid. Valid. And his pants will at one point comically be pulled down, and he'll run down the street with them by his ankles and his heart boxers visible. Mm Mm-hmm. I do like that Richter's in his old X-Force uniform, you know, with the fringe and the big X-logo on the t-shirt. Yes. I love that fringed scarf. Jay, what's your favorite Richter look? I mean, I like that one. I am I am all about fringe and crop top Richter. I really liked his insecure punk look from old X-Factor when he was a younger teenager. Like, the uh, no shirt with the leather vest over it and the pants and the spiky hair and all the spiky bracelets and stuff. I like that you described him as wearing a leather vest over his lack of shirt. Yeah, you know, lack of shirt. It's its own garment in its own way. We do get a great look at the team, you know, which is one of the things that makes this a good jumping on point, as Boom Boom describes all the characters as she narrates the fight that she remembers as they entered Doctor Doom's lands. It's a, sort of a Danger Room cold open, but fightier. Yeah, I mean, it's it's what the, the Danger Room cold opens are theoretically preparing for. Mm-hmm. I also like her take on why she always plays dumb around the team. Our leader can be a little too grim sometimes. I like to get under her skin by playing the bubble-headed blonde. You know, that that's Tabitha. She's actually very smart, she just enjoys fucking with people. This is a rare and kind of terrific example of a new writer coming in, grasping a character, and retconning a detail that makes them better realized. 100%, yes. Kind of the reverse of what Loeb did with Caliban. You know, I was thinking about that too. 
Anyway, while fighting a bunch of robots, Tabitha fell down a chute and was knocked unconscious, and now she wakes up in Littleville with Dimitri. So now I think it's time to talk about the deal with Littleville. Oh, good. Oh, I love this place. So Littleville is a teeny tiny little doll-sized town. Doom created it in the pu- with the Puppet Master back in 1981. And um, to, to populate it, they created a device that would, in the words of Nathaniel Richards... <clears throat> Transfer the psyches of his subjects into Lilliputian synth clone doppelgangers. And uh, Doom has since programmed his servitors to detain invaders here, which is really massively overcomplicated. Oh, that's what makes it such a good supervillain plan. Like, okay, you could have your robot shoot invaders, but no, 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 erase their memories and give them fake lives in a tiny little dollhouse town that's like set back in the early 1900s. Well, an auto-mini-clone them as part of this and keep their bodies in suspended animation. Like, you could just keep their bodies in suspended animation with none of the other stuff, and it would be a much more effective means of imprisoning them. Ah, but remember, this was a plan that Doom came up with with another supervillain, and supervillain plan complications increase exponentially the more supervillains are involved. Yeah, but Doom also maintains it now. Or has maintained it up to his disappearance. Well, because it's awesome! So, X-Force finds Meltdown and Dimitri's actual bodies, and they sever the neural link, so they're okay, um, although Dimitri's buddy, Sergei, dies. Um, and I don't really care about Sergei, and he, this is, like, the only time he's mentioned or appears, so he's just, he's just a dude who's dead and is now out of there. But, um, I, I got kind of stuck on, on the question of whether there are now tiny dead clones of, of Tabitha and, and Dimitri in Littleville. Like, what happened to the little clone bodies? Oh, uh, you know what? Maybe uh, those were clones of their consciousnesses as well in there, and so they sh- they just live their tiny clone lives and, like, you know, grow to respect and eventually love each other and start a little Lilliputian family in Doom's dollhouse. But, like, is there food there? Uh, a ti- there's tiny food. Maybe it's plastic, though. Yeah, that's that's kind of a concern. I'm... I just watched the whole Doom Patrol series in very short order, so if, if you've seen it, you know what I'm thinking of, and if not, it's too complicated to explain, but just putting that out there in the world. Oh, that show is next on the list. Oh, it's so good. So they all get into the castle, and um, Nathaniel Richards does his thing to make the castle think he's Doom, at which point he can control its defenses. And they get to the time platform, and there is some conflict over what to do with it, um, because Dimitri thinks that they should use it, that it's this powerful tool, and, and they can they can do something with it. Dimitri, by the way, is here because Doom's absence has created a power vacuum in Latveria, and he wants to take over the country by, by hereditary right, but use that to promote democracy. He's a little vague on his plans, and I, I get the impression that, that he's, he's not even quite too sure how this is supposed to work. But anyway, he feels that the time platform is way too useful to destroy. As does G.W. Bridge, who is here with his fellow S.H.I.E.L.D. agent. G.W. Bridge, of course, is a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent that used to work with Cable, and now is very grumpy at Cable. And the S.H.I.E.L.D. agents have come in on their own, and they they surprise X-Force and, and Dimitri at the time platform, and there is an immediate showdown. Um, Dimitri pulls out a grenade, a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent shoots him, the grenade goes off, and the time platform goes all walkity. Okay, so that's what's up with uh, all of those X-Force characters, but what about the rest? What about the one staying outside? Okay, well, Sunspot uh, lends a girl named Sophia his Lila Cheney CD, and the second they touch, she has a mysterious vision of his future— which we never see, um, but she immediately passes out. 
And that, as it turns out, is the least of their problems because they look up and discover that Castle Doom has disappeared. Oh, man. Just like Castle Ducula and the intro song to Count Ducula, which is now stuck in my head and will be for a month. God damn it. At least it's a fun song. I don't think I've ever seen Count Ducula. I recommend watching at least one episode. That'll probably be enough to, you know, give you the general gist of it. But it's very silly, and I loved it as a kid, and I suspect it at least somewhat holds up. I watched a bunch of DuckTales a while ago, some of the old series and then all of the new. Oh, I heard the new one was pretty good. It is. It's also a lot less racist. I love things that are less racist. That brings us to X-Force number 64, The Haunting of Castle Doom. This is once again written by John Francis Moore, penciled by Anthony Castrillo and Mark Pajarillo, inked by John Holdridge and Marlo Alquiza, colored by Marie Javins, and lettered by Richard Sarkings and Comicraft and Colia Fuchs. The two pencilers here, while they're both pretty good, uh, they are not seamless. No. To the point where it's kind of hard to tell, depending on which artist is drawing a character, who that character is, especially if they're not wearing a distinctive outfit. Like, the coloring gets screwed up a couple times, and it just makes it baffling what's going on. So, getting into the story, the heroes who are, aren't in the castle, the, that again is, is Warpath, Sunspot, and Caliban, hang out with the Romani and worry. As, as Warpath tells the concerned Caliban. You know, Cal, I don't know. Just don't know. Sometimes it seems we can survive anything. And then I remember my brother. Uh, his brother, of course, being Thunderbird, who died um, very, very early on in um, the Bronze Age X-Men. Right. John Francis Moore knows his continuity, but I think as importantly, if not more importantly, he's got a pretty good handle on, from what I can tell, all of these characters already. It's not just that he knows the continuity, it's that he understands the interaction between continuity and characterization. Oh yeah, good way of putting it. So the castle, as we mentioned, is gone, and that is because the time platform has picked it up and deposited a ghostly version of the modern castle and all of its inhabitants in 1941. But, like, overlapping the original historical version of the castle. Right, it's sort of a ghostly overlay. So the modern characters had, can be seen by and interact with the 1941 folks, but only somewhat. And I love the way this not exactly subtle team is interacting with the historical inhabitants. To whom they're visible, sort of as ghosts. Right, and so Richter tells Shatterstar, Put down that sword, Shatterstar. You're only frightening the help. I swear on my warrior's honor that I did nothing to startle that woman. Said Shatterstar, brandishing two swords. Oh yeah, he's just like flailing them around, which you get the impression he does that all the time. If you weren't such a skilled warrior, there'd probably be like little parallel cuts all over the walls and the ceiling of wherever X-Force hangs out. Oh yeah, yeah. Now, they learn some uncomfortable history at this point because Grandpa Baron Sabat is totally a Nazi collaborator. Boo! Boo! And he is working specifically with Baron von Strucker. Um, whom you might recall as the dad of the uh, of the incest twin upstarts, Fenris. Boo again. For real. Now, Strucker is using the castle to build his Stormfanger, that is Stormcatcher to the rest of us, machine, which, like most Strucker inventions, is a nebulous world domination engine. Unfortunately, it's also a world domination engine that generates an energy field that interferes with the time platform, which means X-Force and company can't get home. Also, also, Strucker's apparently going to assassinate Dimitri's 
granddad, which will be a time paradox, and the fission will be mailed. Now, everyone else is worried about changing the timeline, and Shatterstar is like, guys, I'm basically my own grandpa, and it clearly worked out, so, you know, it'll be fine. And keep in mind, this is before all the long shot stuff that gets retconned into his backstory, so, oh, shatty buns, it's only going to get worse. And yet he will persist. I really enjoy Richter's taunt as he and Siren charge in to attack Baron Strucker. Tell Uncle Adolf that the Irish-Mexican coalition served you your walking papers. And then tell that little runt that he's gonna lose the war. I really, really like John Francis Moore's Richter. Like, I think he's good with all the characters, but Richter's a hard character to get right. Like, he's got that sort of heroic, not exactly arrogance, but sort of uh, raw enthusiasm that I really, really enjoy. So an interesting detail here is that I'm not sure about Mexico, but I know Ireland was officially neutral in World War II. Oh, interesting. Well, uh, at least not for one Irish person, namely Teresa Rourke. Mm-hmm. So X-Force saves Baron Grandpa, drops a chandelier on Strucker, destroys the machine, and heads back to the future, where Cable smashes up the time platform, controls before S.H.I.E.L.D. can claim them, and then Nathaniel Richards has a portentous thought balloon about how he's about to make a deal with the devil, and that's the end of that. So there we go. What did you think about this as an introduction to John Francis Moore's run of X-Force? What do you think about this as a choice for the story he started with? You know, I liked it a lot better my second time through. The first time I was like, okay, yeah, this is okay, it's fine. The second time, as I was noticing more and more of the details, I got more and more into it. I think it's definitely a carefully enough written story to really benefit from rereading or from reading with a fair amount of attention. And if you're someone who knows a fair lot of Marvel history, it's really, really rife with kind of little details and Easter eggs that you don't necessarily need to follow the plot, but that are are kind of an extra treat waiting for you if you happen to notice them. And speaking of continuity lovers' dreams, let us now talk about X-Force and Cable Annual 1997, The Last Valkyrie, written by, again, John Francis Moore, penciled by Rob Haynes, inked by Jason Martin and John Holdridge, Colored by Leanne Clark and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. So I really dig Haynes on art. Does he remind you a little bit of Bernard Chang? He totally does now that you mention it. Yeah, we saw Rob Haynes do a little bit of fill-in art on Excalibur. I'm pretty sure he was one of the 7 billion pencilers in Ben Robb's first issue, number 106. And I think he did those two awesome pages of Colossus painting that started the story. And on this issue, he's just phenomenal. This is an issue about Asgardian bullshit, which means it's immediately on my good list. It's also an issue that references so many of my favorite Asgardian stories. Extra bonus points. Rob Haynes kills it on the art. Wonderful. Great characterization. Great references to old little bits of character interaction. Jay, this is one of the comics we've covered, I think, that I have enjoyed the most in a while. It's a lot of fun, and you know, there are even a few perks that you didn't mention. For example, that it's rooted very heavily and directly in the New Mutants. It totally is, yeah, and I always love it when X-Force does that. Before we get into the glorious, glorious story beats, though, you noticed that we mentioned this was X-Force and Cable Annual 1997. They've done this a couple times before. This is actually the last shared Cable and X-Force Annual In 1998, there will still be paired annuals, but it'll be kind of weird pairings of characters. So, like, 
X4 shares an annual with the champions of all people. Cable shares one with Machine Man, who's uh-huh. not as much fun as he later is in uh, whatchamacallit. What's that Warren Ellis story? Uh, Next Wave. Oh, yeah, Next Wave. Oh, love Next Wave. Anyway, and then in 1999, X-Force and Cable will have their own annuals. So um, that's a little historical note that doesn't actually really matter. So let's talk about the Montana farm on which Daniel Moonstar and the rest of the Mutant Liberation Front are hanging out. Jay, do you want to do a quick recap of who the Mutant Liberation Front is? The Mutant Liberation Front is is an anti-government, basically anarchist um, mutant liberation group. They are technically adversaries most of the time of, of the X-teams, and Danielle Moonstar, who's gone by Moonstar and Mirage, is going by Moonstar right now, and she is technically undercover with them. Um, in this scene, she's ha- talking to Forearm, and Forearm in, like, a regular collared shirt is so incongruous to me. I think he looks great. He's got such a kind face when Rob Haynes draws him, and also four arms. He does. He really does. But, like, he looks like a super normal dude, only he's also got four arms. He's also just being really nice and thoughtful and checking in, but not pushing. This is something I enjoy. Like, some writers remember, some writers don't, some writers remember sometimes, but... Forearm is one of the semi-decent members of the Mutant Liberation Front. Like, you have, say, Reaper and Wildside on one side, who are just these horrible sadistic monsters. But Forearm, you know, he believes in their cause, but he's an alright dude. And the area that comes out the most in is his friendship with Danny. And so when she's getting all mopey about being on the run, being without a leader, being without purpose, and we the readers know, being undercover with bad guys, he's, like, thoughtful and considerate, and I actually really enjoy their friendship. I, I still have trouble getting over the shirt, though. It's it's just weird. What should he be wearing? I don't know. I can't remember if I've ever actually seen him wearing a shirt before. That's true. Normally he just wears one of those He-Man-style bondage harnesses. Yeah, exactly. And this is like the most middle-of-the-road suburban dad shirt he could have chosen. I just want to see him in like a giant fluffy bathrobe, but with forearms. Aw, sounds comfy. Yeah, with, like, a mug of hot cocoa in one of his hands, leaving the other three free for, you know, whatever. Reading a book. Petting a cat. Anyway, they don't have time for book reading, cat petting, or catching up, because suddenly there is a giant fireball, and a lady with an armored bathing suit and her winged horse crash down and make a big crater in the ground. And, hey, it's Brunhilde the Valkyrie and Aragorn the horse. If you know the character Valkyrie from The Defenders who was altered a bit, but also in Thor Ragnarok. Yeah, it's her. When someone says Valkyrie as a name, this is the one. Aragorn the Horse. Keep in mind, when Aragorn the Horse was created, Lord of the Rings was not quite as in the popular consciousness, so it wasn't as weird to call your horse Aragorn. I love the crossover fanfiction that's happening just in these two characters. Yeah, that's a really good point. You got your ring cycle, you got your Lord of the Rings, you have all your Marvel nonsense. A lot of rings going on. It's true. Brynhilda's in bad shape for some reason and doesn't have the strength to talk about it, but she does have the strength to transfer the heart of the Valkyrior to Danny with a touch, uh, before giant demon dogs teleport in from another dimension and carry her off. And straight up eat her horse. Uh, they, they do, it's true, but thankfully, like a lot of big monsters, they don't seem to, uh, you know, chew and swallow, so don't worry, listeners, Aragorn will, will be okay. I don't know, dude, there's a panel of, of, um... The, the dog with its mouth shut and, like, blood drool dripping out of it. Hey, Aragorn's tough, all right? In both Lord of the Rings and this. See, now I'm just thinking about Brynhilda just, like, riding on the shoulders of Lord of the Rings Aragorn. 
Anyway, so let's give some context here, though, because we have Danny, who's Cheyenne. We have a bunch of Asgardian mythology. So here's the deal. The Marvel Universe, of course, has a big Norse mythology focus in the Thor comic, and it is wonderful, and I love it very much. And in the 1980s, the New Mutants were teleported to Asgard, and some of them to other realms on the World Tree at Yggdrasil, by the Asgardian villain, the Enchantress. That was in New Mutants Special Edition number 1 and Uncanny X-Men Annual number 9, which we covered in episode 48 of our show, called Guitar Solos of the Gods. Still one of our best episodes, I think. While they were there, Danny rescued a winged horse and was transformed into one of the Valkyries, because it turned out she rescued one of their steeds. So, I know what the Valkyries are in Norse mythology, I know what they are in the Ring Cycle, what's their deal in Marvel? Uh, pretty similar, not identical. They are mystical warrior women, there are generally nine of them, depending on who you ask, depending on who's writing. And their job is to bring the souls of warriors who died in valiant battle to a place called Valhalla. And there, those warriors will fight and feast uh, and be reborn after they die in their, their battles every night to prepare to serve Odin in the final battle of Ragnarok at the end of the world. Danny's not exactly a normal Valkyrie, and she certainly hasn't been in Asgard for a very long time. When the New Mutants headed back to Midgard, asterisk, caption, Earth, at the end of that story, Danny kept her Valkyrie powers. Mainly that meant that she could see when death was coming for various people. And fight him. Yeah, and that led to a really poignant story one time, which was, was pretty great. Danny did end up going to Asgard again toward the end of New Mutants Volume 1. At that point, the death goddess Hela corrupted her into like an evil demonic Valkyrie who was brainwashed. But even, but even after that was resolved, Danny stayed in Asgard. That was between New Mutants 77 and 87 or thereabouts, right before Cable showed up, pretty much. We covered that in episode 127 of our show, Disaster City, and episode 132, Nornheim Lemonade. What we still don't know is how Danny came to leave Asgard and land back on Earth, what happened to her Valkyrie powers, and how she ended up with the MLF. Exactly. We'll learn a little bit more about that later. It's just sort of been alluded to at this point that for some reason she was expelled from Asgard. So at this point, she tells Forearm, I gotta deal with this on my own. And what she actually means is I don't want to deal with this with the MLF, because she goes and changes in her into her uniform. She goes outside to wait for the folks that she's called to actually help her. That being X-Force. She specifically just called for Sunspot, who was one of her best friends back when they were New Mutants. But yeah, just about everybody's here. Boom Boom points out that it's almost like a New Mutants reunion. I mean... There's her, there's Danny, there's Sunspot, there's Richter. Because remember, toward the end of the New Mutants run, the team looked a lot more like X-Force than it looked like the early New Mutants. I think everyone tends to forget that. They tend to think of just those nine kids wearing black and yellow. But yeah, Sunspot, Richter, and Boom Boom were with Danny the last time they were all in Asgard. So, you know, good choices to bring along. And there is so much history between these characters, such well-developed relationships and friendships and rivalries, and John Francis Moore gets it. Sunspot starts talking about Danny being in the MLF. I still don't know why you signed on with that bunch of psychos, but we've been through too much together for me to ever turn my back on you. Okay. To which Danny responds, The new mutants are history now, Bobby. Time passes. People move on. And Boom Boom adds, Yeah, but not to the other side, Danny. 
Take Sam, for example. He's a full-fledged X-Man now. Rain returned to Scotland and joined Excalibur? And Karma, well, who knows where she is these days? But it's not with the MLF. You know, this seems like a good time to do a New Mutants robot roll call and talk about where everybody else ended up. So, Jay, who do we have on our list of former New Mutants, and what are they up to, aside from the ones that were mentioned? Well, Cypher, Warlock, and Magic are currently all apparently dead, except that Warlock and Cypher may or may not be alive in some combination as Duglock. Magma went off to find her true British parents as Alison Crestmere because she found out that her ancient Roman colony of Nova Roma was a lie created by Selene. Later, of course, it will turn out to have been real. Ah, dueling retcons. Rusty Collins joined the Acolytes and blew up in space along with Asteroid M. Skids also joined the Acolytes. She's still with them, although she wasn't seen in the Magneto miniseries. We'll see her very soon, actually. Gossamer and Bird Boy? Remain a mystery. Welp, it's off to Canada. Not for shadowy government agencies and their shadowy sins, but for an ancient Viking village buried in the snow. Specifically, this is the village which contains the citadel where Loki empowered the X-Men and Alpha Flight in the two-issue X-Men Alpha Flight miniseries, which we covered in episode 47, The Price of Power. I love all these references. Oh, that was the story where everyone found out Madeline was pregnant, right? That was the one, yeah. Actually, really, really good story. Uh, Paul Smith did the art, and it was phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Sunspot melts all of the snow away to free the village. He's just in his skimpy techno harness, despite everyone else being all bundled up. Boom Boom has a great big scarf. She is so upset at the cold. I hear you, Boom Boom. I hate the cold, too. And it turns out this, this village is a nexus point to travel between the realms on the world tree. And to sum that up briefly, so in Norse mythology, there's this big ash tree called Yggdrasil, which I'm sure I'm mangling the pronunciation of, apologies tree, and that branches off into nine worlds. Midgard is the name of Earth, which is our world. Asgard is where Thor and Odin and a lot of the prominent gods live. There's also Muspelheim, the realm of fire. There's Nidavalir, the realm of the dwarves, depending on who you ask, that may or may not be a realm. There's Jotunheim, the realm of the giants. There's a bunch. We don't need to worry about too many of them right now. But the point is, there are all these dimensions that comprise the world tree, and there are certain nexus points between various worlds where you can go into a cave or a portal or whatever to get between one or the other. Or if you're going between Asgard and somewhere else, there's always the Rainbow Bridge. That doesn't really factor in here, though. Yeah, that only works if you can call it, which means you pretty much need to be one of the Aesir, which none of our characters are. Nope. So as they go through the portal into Asgard, they find out from some local trolls that jump them that, oh, the dark elf Malekith the Accursed has taken over Asgard and captured the Valkyries. Well, all of the gods are also missing right now. Like, we don't know what's up with them, and apparently this is this, there's, there's big stuff going on in Journey into Mystery, but all of the Asgardian gods are, are gone, and I believe living on Earth as humans at the moment. Uh, Yeah, at this point in the Thor book, or, well, yeah, in Journey into Mystery more specifically, they all think they have been just living these normal human lives. That won't last too long, but it does mean that Asgard has been very easy to take over for Malekith, one of my favorite Thor villains. You may remember him as being played by Christopher Eccleston and being very boring in Thor the Dark World. Put that Malekith out of your mind, readers. Oh, I liked his fancy hair. I liked his fancy hair, but let's be real, he was not a memorable MCU villain. 
Which is a shame, because Eccleston's performance was so good, but apparently they cut a bunch of his scenes because they felt like he was redundant with Loki and people would like Tom Hiddleston better and blah, blah, blah. Man, Christopher Eccleston keeps getting the short shrift on stuff, and he's so great, and it makes me so mad. I know! Phenomenal actor. Ah, still one of the best doctors. There's so many good things about him. But the thing with comparing Malekith and Loki is that they're not redundant, because they juxtapose so extremely well. Malekith is what you would get if you took the hidden compassion out of Loki completely and replaced it with malice and sadism. They both do the mischief-deceit thing, but Malekith is genuinely evil and terrible. He's technically a dark elf, and there is indeed a realm, Svartalfheim, on the world tree where the dark elves hang out, but he's also, the way he's portrayed in the Marvel Universe, thanks to Walter Simonson's run on Thor, kind of also like one of the fair folk from Celtic mythology. In that Walter Simonson run, still one of the greatest runs of comics of all time. Listeners, do yourself a favor, read it. It's so good. Absolutely. In that run, Malekith almost destroyed Midgard, asterisk, caption, Earth, using the casket of ancient winters, and it was awesome. He's also got a great look. Like, his face is half pale white like the rest of him, half burned black. He's got this long blonde hair and these always red, jaunty, almost a little jestery outfits. Oh, I love Malekith so much. By the way, if you want to learn more about the Thor stuff, if you're getting really into this and you're not aware, um, while we were on hiatus a while ago, Miles did a limited series podcast with Elizabeth Alley called Thor the Lightning and the Storm, and we'll link to that in the visual companion, but they covered the entire Simonson run. Oh, yes, with with such love, with, with such reverence. At this point, Malekith has taken over Asgard, he's imprisoned the Valkyries, and he wants to use the Valkyries' powers to cross the Nine Realms and take them over. Doesn't work, though, because the Valkyrie's power is missing, almost like it's been transferred to someone else. Malekith actually will gain this ability in 2019's epic mega-crossover The War of the Realms, which was the climax of Jason Aaron's also amazing Thor run. I also highly recommend that. Uh, for now, though, he, he doesn't, so it's just an annual instead of, like, a 45-issue giant event. So... When a bunch of humans, mutants, but a bunch of, 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 of Midgardian humans intrude upon his new territory, Malekith's move is to go, wow, we should never have stopped hunting these guys for sport. Let's do that. So he calls the Wild Hunt on X-Force. He mounts up on a giant demon hound like one of the ones we saw before. He picks up his badass rune spear, and there is a great big fight, which is Awesome. Rob Haynes does really good action scenes. Although, Jay, did you notice that one panel where Caliban and Shatterstar are doing a fastball special and their proportions are, like, all fucked? Yeah. Yeah, that was a little weird. Yeah, Caliban's, like, two to three times the size of Shatterstar. I don't know if Caliban's huge or Shatterstar's tiny, but it's weird because that's the only panel that they're portrayed that way. I don't get it. Yeah, the they, they should be foreshortened in ways that they're not. Right. I do really appreciate that Siren takes out Malekith's giant dog by screaming at a frequency that she discovered she could use to disrupt fox hunts and make dogs very sad. She, do she doesn't take it out, she just distracts it. I mean, you know, good enough. But it's awesome. Like, all dynamic poses and characters using their powers in cool, creative ways. There's such a good sense of motion. Like, the characters sometimes even escape the panels they're in to overlap other panels. Like, your eye is just drawn in such perfectly paced directions, such a perfectly paced path across each page. Now, the fight ends when Cable takes a killing blow from Malekith's spear that was meant for Danny, and he convinces the team that they should retreat and leave him, which they ultimately do. 
Thankfully, Kindra the Dwarf of the realm of Nidavalar is there to lead them to Jotunheim. Speaking of Asgardian adventure flashbacks... Right? She nursed Cannonball back to health in the original Asgardian Wars storyline when he was injured, and they were super cute together. And in fact, in a what-if story, they got married and had kids, and it was great. And she's also really stylish. Like, she's wearing this full-body pink-stitched leather armor suit with a cape, and she just looks fucking rad. Everyone looks rad in this story. So, the dwarves have allied with a very, very unlikely bedfellow, namely the Frost Giants, to resist Malekith. Yeah, the Frost Giants are normally bad guys, but the Frost Giant that X-Force meets up with is not. This is a woman named Skadi. She is a giant lady wearing furs and bracelets, and she looks really cool, and she's actually a big deal in mythology. She and her husband Njord are the parents of the Vanir, who inhabit the realm of Vanaheim. Uh, Njord is also Odin's uncle, so, you know, everyone's kind of a family member of everybody, like in Greek mythology. And Skadi tells them... Okay, so Malekith has the Valkyries imprisoned in Valhalla, where they hang out, but, you know, only the honored dead can go there, and none of our main characters are the honored dead, so that's a problem, as Boom Boom puts it. Talk about a club with a strict dress code. So basically, unless someone kicks off in the next couple of minutes, we don't have the cover charge. But thankfully... Danny doesn't have to abide by that restriction because she's a Valkyrie. She can come and go freely from Valhalla. Is she still a Valkyrie or does she just have the Valkyrie power right now from Brunhilde? I think she's still technically a Valkyrie. I mean, certainly in later continuity, she still counts enough as a Valkyrie to do Valkyrie stuff. So I think so. Yeah. And she's also got a ride um, because Aragorn, despite having definitely been eaten before, is actually here recovering with... um, with the dwarves. Yeah, well done, Aragorn. Aragorn heals fast. Like Wolverine. Maybe Aragorn was in Weapon X, I don't know. I really appreciate as well that as Danny mounts up on Aragorn and flies off to Valhalla, Sunspot, without question, just flies along beside her. And she's just so grateful. She's so grateful that even after she's been on the mutant liberation front, one of X-Force's arch nemeses... Bobby is still her friend. They still have that bond. They were so close back in New Mutants. I mean, yes, they argued as much as they were buds, but still, that was all based on that kind of an intense friendship. And it's so good to see that back. It's so good to see John Francis Moore really focus on the bonds between these characters and the history between these characters. Yeah, we may be only three issues in, but I'm pretty sold on him as X-Force writer at this point. Oh, God, for real. Inside is Hela. The goddess of death, and she says, hey, the souls of these Valkyries are mine, as is amazing fashion sense. If I've learned one thing about Hela, it's that she always looks incredible. She's got this giant shouldered cape, she's got this cowl with these elaborate antlered spines, a green bodysuit with complex armored framing. Like, if you've seen Thor Ragnarok, you've seen her, I think that was a great visual depiction, but she looks even more elaborate and regal in the comics. She's a character whose design really evokes the best of both Kirby and Simonson. Oh, very, very much so, yeah. That's one of the things I love about Walter Simonson's run, is that he doesn't have the same style as Jack Kirby, but he clearly has the same sense of cosmic more is more, and it just feels like Asgard. It's wonderful. Well, he's clearly got a tremendous amount of respect for what Kirby did, and his his 
his, the stuff he does that evokes Kirby is very, very recognizable, but very, very much within his own sensibilities. Like, it doesn't stick out as odd in his style because he's so much making it his own while keeping that connection to the original. Very much so. And since that run is written and drawn, at least the first half, both by Walter Simonson, it's also incredibly cohesive. And in the second half of the run, when Salbusima takes over on art, like, still pretty cohesive. They had a great dynamic. Anyway, this isn't about Thor. I love Thor so much. This is about X-Force. And in X-Force, Danny is not here to fight the concept and or goddess of death this time. Instead, she fires a psychic arrow into Brunhilde, containing the essence of the Valkyries. And the Valks are back, baby! So with the Valkyries on their side, it takes them very little time to defeat Malekith. And Ytri the Dwarf makes a solid iron cell to hold him in, and with that, everyone goes home. As Danny promises to explain herself as soon as she can, which thankfully is going to be in just a few issues, so stay tuned. And the issue closes with the following words. This one's for Stan and Jack, who opened the gates of Asgard, and for Chris and Art and Walter, who dazzled us with their deluxe tours of the Golden Realm. Those first names, of course, belonging to Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, Chris Claremont, Art Adams, and Walter Simonson. Not coincidentally, most of my favorite creators by this point in Marvel history who have handled Asgard stuff. Seriously, this annual, I mean, it's not a very consequential story, whatever, but it is such a love letter to Marvel's Asgard and the New Mutants history with it, and that's some of my favorite Marvel ever, and it's just so delightful to see it handled with such just love and respect and joy and excitement by John Francis Moore and Rob Haynes and the rest of the creative team. I don't know if this issue is actually as good as I think it is, or if it's just that someone wrote a comic specifically for me. I don't know, Jay, you're more objective. What do you think about this one? I think your read of it is definitely mediated by your love of the material, and I I think mine is too, if to a slightly lesser extent. But I think even coming in without that, it's a really fun issue. Yeah, for real. And uh, yeah, I'm feeling super optimistic about this run of X-Force. And we're covering an era where, listeners, as you've noticed, like, we like a lot of it, we're not so big on a lot of it, it doesn't really seem to hold together in a lot of ways, and so it's just has me really amped up that we're starting a run that starts so strong. Yeah, there's a lot in this era that I know to dread. There's very little that I, I know to be excited for, the way I am for Moore's ongoing run. Yeah, so hooray for more of this. Wah, wah. Uh, yes, pun uh, totally intended and premeditated. We also, I don't know, meditate on our listeners, and they've got questions. Dante the Canine asks on Twitter, If the Weird Happenings organization is the Marvel Universe's unit, does that make Black Air Torchwood? Ah, unit and Torchwood, of course, being two major organizations from Doctor Who. So I would say, yes. But here's the thing. Black Air, the shadowy jerks from Excalibur, would be Torchwood 1. Those are the amoral black hats whose screw-ups led to the horrible disaster in the Battle of Canary Wharf at the end of David Tennant's first season of Doctor Who. Great big organization. Not exactly evil, but, you know, didn't think things through. Kind of heartless. Got what they maybe deserved. I don't know. I would say... That Torchwood 3, those are the characters led by Captain Jack Harkness, who star on the Torchwood TV show, they're maybe a little more like the secret agents from the underrated Captain Britain and MI13 series by Paul, by Paul Cornell and Leonard Kirk. 
they're basically a bunch of British sexy emo weirdos making questionable decisions but doing their best. It's a really good series, actually. Everybody should read it. At one point, they team up with Blade to fight vampires on the moon. And bonus connection, the version of Merlin from the old Marvel Doctor Who comic, back when Marvel had the license for Doctor Who, makes an appearance in the series. So uh, there's your double Doctor Who X connection. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, There are a lot of weird elements in the early X-Men that obviously went away by the time Claremont really brought the franchise to prominence. Whether it be stuff like the X-Men being public celebrities with fans in a government liaison, Magneto having mental powers, or even some mostly forgotten villains and supporting characters. Is there anything you personally would want to bring back from the old Silver Age X-Men run, even though that period itself isn't all that popular? I mean, Neil Adams' art. But also, I miss a lot of the X-Men's interactions with the human world. In the Silver Age, they were very, very rooted there. Um, they even all moved out of the mansion for a while, but like different ones of them went to college, they all had friends, they like they did a bunch of stuff that was very much that was very much human and very much like rooted in place in ways that the X-Men don't tend to be. Like if you think about the the series that are really Marvel series about place, you think of stuff like Spider-Man or to a lesser extent, maybe the Fantastic Four. Um, and you don't really think of the X-Men that way, but in the Silver Age, they really, really were. And I really dug that. Um, also, and I think I've said this before, I feel pretty strongly that Cyclops's run as a radio journalist was rad as hell and should have more modern callbacks. <laughs> right. But uh, yeah, I totally agree. I was kind of thinking of the same thing for this question. I miss them having regular civilian slash human world hangouts like the Coffee A Go-Go. I mean, the 80s slash 90s had Harry's hideaway, sure, but that was infrequent and the place wasn't very well defined. And it lacked Bernard the Poet. Right? And we do now have Krakoa's Green Lagoon, the Tiki Bar, but it's very much not about civilians or the human world. It's just mutants being themselves, which, don't get me wrong, is great, so you don't have that contrast. Somewhat similarly, I also miss the occasional ridiculous unrelated villain, like, I don't know, the Locust or the Conquistador or Metaxo the Lava Man. Like, thematically appropriate villains are great for the X-Men. The book is mostly metaphor— but sometimes wacky random ones make it feel more like the X-Men inhabit the wacky random Marvel Universe. Miles, I, I hate to break this to you, but Metoxo the Lava Man didn't actually appear in the Silver Age. Didn't he, Jay? Didn't he? No, there's just a little teaser that he's going to show up in the next issue, and then he doesn't. You didn't read that issue? I, I think that that's an issue um, that, that exists only in your imagination, my friend. The purest realm of all. We are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of thanks come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters or concepts. But before we dive into that today, we have a few more names to thank for people who donated to our Equality Florida campaign back in April. So thank you very much to... Joseph Pearson, Sam Jones, Brandon Seifert, Adam Kennedy, Blind Seer Zero, Suzanne Morgan, and Hugh Owens. Yes, thank you all very much. And now... On to the angry Claremontian narrator. Look, Damon Taylor, you're, you're great and all, but I don't know that you really have the, let's say, the presence to carry a story like this one. Hodsky might, but I think we all know how that one would end up. Maybe best just to move on and leave the protagonist hood to someone else. And the mic from here goes to, oh my... Sexy Doctor Doom. That fool Richards may have escaped my perfect tiny town of Littleville in 1981. 
But my new prisoners shall never realize their miniaturized lives are but constructs of the almighty doom. For they shall be most distracted from their peril by the finest and most modern of Latverian titillation. Peasants! Stoke the fires of the steam-powered lathe with the last of your pitiful strength, if you must. For we must have an adequately impressive supply of adult toys hewn from the ancient forests of Doomstadt, lest Matt Wellstrom's attention stray toward the wider, normal-sized world. Shovel, peasants, and squeeze those bellows. We need more marital aids to amaze and delight the hated Matt. And, my indentured scientists, cease not your work on those state-of-the-art pornographic mutoscopes. If Eric Cadwell is not able to manually advance the black-and-white peep-show narrative by turning the machine's crank at a steady rate, Eric's resentment at the loss of the film's penny cost will build into curiosity, and then escape. My loyal and subjugated inferiors, show pride in your nation, show pride in Latveria, and distract our tiny foes with handcrafted sexy things. So demands doom! And with that, Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode and original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week it's Hawk Talk, but we'll be back in two weeks to see what Domino was up to while X-Force was storming Latveria. In her first solo miniseries. This the scene we're about to talk about. Like I, I giggled aloud at Shatterstar's uh, response. He's a silly man. Oh, shatty buns. <laughs>